Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, August 4th. We're running through some quarterly results from Apple and Twitter. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com senior tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, I know Twitter reported last week, and we're a little behind on the news here, but I felt like we had to revisit this one for listeners. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty, pretty widely followed company. A lot of people are interested. And in my opinion, it was just such a weird update and conference call. Um, you know, like you, you get some of the standard numbers that, that you expect, but when we when we were digging through management's commentary on some of these results, uh, it was just so weird uh, with some of the core metrics that you'd expect and, and kind of their explanation for what's going on. Um, looking at what was actually happening with the business, the top line, revenue was actually pretty good. It clocked in at $574 million. Which beat analyst expectations actually pretty comfortably. Of course, that was still a decline from the 600 million the company posted in the same quarter a year ago. Um, some struggles with their ad business kind of leading to some of the issues there. Uh, the company is still losing money. No real surprise there. Where it's the, where things kind of start to get curious for me is what's going on with user growth, and it was uninspiring. I mean, and I think part of the reason that it was it was particularly bad for them. Was they were coming off a quarter where they added nine million monthly active users in the previous quarter, and that was as many as they'd done in the previous three quarters combined. So I think a lot of a lot of people expecting this to maybe be the period where Twitter is turning it around, and they come and show results. And <laughs> my gosh, like you couldn't come up with something worse to show after something like that, right? They ended the yeah. Qu- I mean, yeah, like last quarter, like you mentioned, was the previous quarter with nine million. Was like wow, that's the best in years, and then. All of a sudden, they just follow up with zero sequential growth. <laughs> yeah, they ended the first quarter with 328 million monthly actives, and that's exactly where they wound up three months later, flat sequential growth. Uh, but and I were- think it, it's important to look at the, the breakdown, right? Because the, the 328 million is global, but they're, in the U.S. in particular, they lost 2 million, so the international kind of gained 2 million. But the U.S. is where they have the best monetization. So, I mean, that's a pretty incrementally like that's a hit on their business just because, you know, the international users, they they don't really monetize those very well. I think the thing that's kind of curious about that, too, is Twitter maybe has never been more relevant in the United States. You know, you think about the president of the United States using it to talk about a lot of the things that he wants to do with his administration on Twitter, um, and it being kind of constantly reported and constantly in the or, news. Or to, or to cyberbully people too. You know, there's that. <laughs> yeah, and and yet um, they are they are struggling in the domestic market, which is just kind of curious uh, to me. But uh, what's going on with MAUs is not great. But I think it's particularly bad for Twitter because of basically what management said about some of these user numbers. So. First thing, looking at MAUs, management blamed seasonal factors for flat MAUs, but they didn't really have an explanation for why. <laughs> yeah, I think Noto uh, CFO Anthony Noto was like, "We don't have the data on what's happening here." It's like, okay, then why are you telling us it's seasonal if you don't have the data to actually support that? It's just kind of a it's kind of a cop out. I mean, kind of like a lot of this quarter was a cop out. I know you need an explanation because anytime you throw a flat number out there, um, people are going to ask like, "What the heck is going on?" But you know, to say seasonal factors and then not have anything to attribute it to is uh, just kind of like mind blowing to me. Um, then you look over at how management spends so much time stressing the importance of daily active users and kind of using that as their proxy for engagement. They talk about how DAUs were up 12% year over year, 
And yet again, they refuse to provide the actual number for what's going on with DAUs. And they say, despite positive DAU growth for the last three quarters, the ratio of DAUs to MAUs hasn't meaningfully changed since the company said it was slightly less than 50% in 2014. Right, which kind of suggests that these DAU numbers are very small, which is obviously, you know, presumably why they're kind of hiding them. But if the numbers are really small, then, you know, yeah, if you get growth off this kind of small base, then that, that, might, that might be why the overall ratio isn't really changing much. But, but for that to be your core metric that you're focusing on as a proxy for engagement, and then to have basically two different measures of that metric not trending in the same direction is just baffling to me. Yeah, it makes no sense. And I mean, it's interesting because yeah, this whole disclosure of DAUs is becoming more and more important and more and more investors and analysts alike are like starting to raise eyebrows of this exact thing. Like, why won't you break this out? And to the point where the SEC sent Twitter a letter in June asking them to basically justify it. It's like, hey, you're exactly what we're talking about. It's like, hey, you're you're saying this is so important, but you're not telling us what it is. Like, how do you reconcile this kind of obvious you know, cognitive dissonance of saying one thing but doing the other thing, and there—it's the same defense, and it's really a not a poor defense, which is they're just like, oh, we think the percentage change is more important. The absolute number is not important, but then why do you keep saying the AUs are so important? And and they're and they're kind of like it's even condescending in a way because they're 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 like, oh, if we give you absolute, then that's going to confuse investors and distract them. It's like no, that you're you're basically, you know. You don't think investors can understand the difference and like know what to focus on? You know, like let investors choose. Don't choose for them and, and assume that they won't understand. You know, it, it's just kind of condescending to say that they're not going to be like, you know, be able to figure out the numbers if you give them to them. Yeah, my feeling is just give me the number. Like I'll do my own analysis if you give me the DAU number and I'll understand the puts and takes. Um, management offered <clears throat> some commentary on what's going on with the DAU calculation and the MAU calculation to kind of reconcile how it can be the DAU number can be trending up over a period but not mean that DAUs as MAUs is growing as a percentage CFO Anthony Noto went on this long-winded explanation basically saying that DAUs are calculated by averaging the number of users each day in the quarter while MAUs are the average of the last day of each month in the quarter so you can think of the DAU calculation basically as an average of like 90, 90 days, whereas the MAUs are an average of three days. And I can understand how that would lead to some lumpiness in the data, but to me, that's a terrible explanation because <laughs> the management team is the one that's deciding to calculate it that way. Like you have the data to work with. Like you're deciding that you're making a lumpy number. Don't don't blame your like. That's such a that's just a cop out. Exactly. It's like they're going to so much effort to hide this. It's like it's just easier to just get it out there. You stop getting all this criticism and then you just let investors figure it out for themselves. But they're doing all this like gymnastics just to like hide this and obfuscate it. And I mean, certainly one thing that they're afraid of is being compared to Facebook. I mean, in in their response to the SEC, they very much said that they calculate differently so that they don't want to compare other companies that do disclose DAUs. And um, you know, Facebook's the only one that really discloses as much as they, you know, as there is. And, and for example, they, they said that, you know, oh, well, because Facebook includes people that use Messenger in their DAU number, even though Messenger is a different application. But that's also a poor reasoning because Twitter also has a direct message 
part of its service. It's just within the same app. So Facebook has, you know, Facebook and then it has Messenger in addition to, you know, its other messaging services. But, but you know, Messenger is fundamentally part of Facebook. And just because it's a separate app doesn't mean you're not using the service. You know, so that's also a poor reason because, you know, functionality, it's effectively, you know, the same thing. Like both companies have you know, a feed of content and both companies have a messaging service. So it's like, why is that? How does that make it not comparable? You know, it, it, it just, it's just everything, the whole reason just falls flat. Yeah, this this feels an awful lot like a like a therapy vent session for you and I. Um, talk, talking through this, um, I think I think we have beaten the the user growth and MAU DAU conversation uh, dead. So why don't why don't we try to move over to what's going on with the ad market dynamics for Twitter? Um, one of the things that I kind of talked about last time we were looking at their results is the platform's ad rates continue to just free fall, and I think that's really troubling. Um, if you're relying on you know advertising for the, vajo- the majority of your revenue, uh, cost per engagement was down 53%, and that's on the back of a 64% decline a year ago. Now, historically, uh, before the last couple quarters, they've been able to continue to grow revenue and stay afloat by making it up on volume. And in this quarter, total engagements were up 95%, but it's clearly not happening to the extent where they're able to grow revenue anymore. I mean, we saw this last quarter, we're seeing it again this quarter, um, you know, with the year-over-year declines. And and as MAUs are stalling, I just wonder how sustainable the you know what's going on with their ad business really is. Right, and there's a, a fundamental disconnect because you know here they are on one hand touting all these engagement gains like the DAU increases or whatever, and at the same time ad revenue is falling it's down eight percent year over year, and you know we we mentioned Trump earlier and you know there was a lot of hope that Trump would boost engagement which would subsequently boost the ad business and it seems on one hand it might be boosting engagement even though like we mentioned earlier the the U.S. user numbers are not great either, but there's de- there's definitely you know. There's a big disconnect somewhere in there, and and I think it boils down to execution because they're not really successfully monetizing this engagement, and you can see that in the ad numbers, the ad revenue numbers. Yeah, and management keeps talking about the declining ad prices as an opportunity, right? It it becomes more appealing to advertisers to come to the platform and advertise on Twitter um, if it's more affordable for them to do it. The problem is... um, Facebook and Google are just scooping up market share in in the digital ad space, and really they kind of have a duopoly right now. And um, I think I think advertisers have just seen such great ROIs on that platform, and, and they know that all of the demographic trends are kind of moving in the right direction for them, where they have these growing user bases um, and are maintaining their relevancy. Um, that it's going to be really tough for for Twitter to command uh, any pricing power. You know, uh, at any point, you know, I'm sure they're going to hit a bottom just because of the way that pricing dynamics eventually work. And you know, you can only decline for so long before uh, you, you hit some point of stabilization. But that's also not a huge, you know, bullish signal for me. Right. I mean, kind of anecdotally, like for, they they mentioned in, in the letter that the increases in, in engagement are partially due to better targeting and better relevance. But anecdotally, when I'm on Twitter, I compared to like when I'm on Facebook, for example. The ads that I see are just like they're not like they're. I I just feel like they're less relevant and they're just not very well targeted. And not that I click on a lot of ads in general, but you know the stuff I see on Facebook does is like you know just incrementally a little bit more relevant. Like oh, that's a little bit more interesting than the stuff I see on Twitter. And I just don't think Twitter is very good at targeting. They don't have as much user data uh, because they just don't collect. You know they're they're much more of a kind of narrowly based service. So they don't have an opportunity to collect as much data, which also means they can't target as well. But I mean, 
to their credit, they're saying that they're getting better. Yeah. Speaking of user data, if you are looking for bright spots in this report, the data licensing business for Twitter is doing well. Um, it's up over 20% year over year. Right now, it only makes up about 15% of revenue, but it is higher margin revenue. Management said that $1 in data revenue is worth 3 to $4 in ad revenue due to the difference in profitability there. Um, and you see that a little bit bear out in the financials where you know the company hit a 31% EBITDA margin uh, earnings before interest, depreciation, uh, taxes, and amortization. And that's the best they've done as, as a public company. Um, and so, so as that business grows, that, that's something to be interested in. The problem is, it is such a small portion of uh, Twitter's top line right now. And a lot of the user issues that we're talking about ultimately feed into that business as well. It's not something that's siloed um, that is apart, right? You know, the, the relevancy and, and uh, value of their data licensing business hinges on, um, you know, how many times people come back to the platform, how many times people use the platform, uh, and, and how important it is to people's lives. And it is kind of an interesting reversal from the, the kind of <clears throat> mentality they took you know, a few years back. So, you know, right first when we went public, you know, this data licensing revenue was, you know, again, pretty profitable. But in their all other filings, they they kept predicting, saying, oh, data licensing is going to be, incre- you know, continue to be smaller and smaller part of the business as the ad business grows. But now, of course, fast forward a couple of years, they're having so much trouble growing the ad business that now they're trying to turn that story around. But, oh, hey, look at this data licensing business. We're going to try to grow that again. Whereas a couple of years ago, they were just not really concerned about it because they're focusing on the ad business. So I think it is an interesting reversal if you look at management's mentality of how they approach these two parts of the overall business. Yeah, and they said they're going to explore new ways to expand that. So in the coming quarters, I would not be surprised uh, to see that make up a larger portion of revenue overall. Uh, particularly as they figure out what's going on on the ad side. Um, <laughs> um, this is all to say, Evan, I am still not sold on the turnaround of Twitter's core business. I don't know about you. I've never really been sold on it. I mean, it's this, this whole user, even beyond the whole DAU disclosure thing, this whole, it's this exact same problem that has plagued Twitter literally since day one, which is just. User growth is just not great. Like people don't really. It's too, service remains hard to use. It, it's there's a steep learning curve. It's not doesn't really appeal to mainstream people. And most pe- mainstream people can get what they need from the news, right? Because the news covers what happens on Twitter, and then they'll embed the tweets. So you know you see the tweets right there. You don't have to log in. You don't have to go Twitter yourself for a lot of people. So I, I just don't know how they how they can ever address that core problem, which is the service is hard to use, and most mainstream people don't have a need to use it. Yeah, and I just don't like the idea of a business um, or uh, you know management just deciding to not give the full picture on something that is clearly uh, core to the business. You know, like the the DAU MAU thing is just maddening to me um, because uh, it's it feels a lot like Twitter's talking out both sides of its mouth right now, and. Uh, that it's just frustrating. It's not what I want to see from management. Um, that we're obviously going to keep talking about them because it is a super interesting business to watch. Uh, but I am staying far, far away. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I've never touched Twitter stock, <laughs> long or short, either way. <laughs> uh, on, on the flip side, uh, Apple's earnings report looked pretty darn good. Yeah, it was it was a pretty strong strong beat, and um, it's funny because seasonally the June quarter is usually just kind of a boring quarter, uh, but this one was so, such a good report that it sent shares to all time highs, and 
now Apple's approaching $800 billion market cap, thanks to this report. <laughs> yeah, looking at the big numbers, we have revenue at $45.4 billion, which beat estimates by $500 million. Uh, earnings came in at $1.67 a share, which also beat expectations. So, great stuff on the top and bottom line. Like you said, stock jumped on the news, new all-time highs. Um, why don't we look at some of the different segments here, start out with the iPhone. So, iPhone, uh, you know, they sold about 41 million units, which was, uh, I think, a little bit ahead of consensus expectations. But, you know, with all the talk, I mean, there's so many iPhone 8 rumors. And, I mean, this is going to be a pretty big you know, product cycle this year. So, and I mean, for most people that follow Apple even remotely, they know, hey, we got a new iPhone coming. Don't buy an iPhone now. Buy, you know, wait a couple months to buy an iPhone. So it's pretty crazy that they're able to really put up such a strong number, given the fact that, you know, Tim Cook has acknowledged that these types of rumors have been hurting the business, particularly within the past few months, or at least at least last quarter, the quarter before this. Uh, he very much acknowledged that it is hurting demand. So the fact that they are still able to come in with, with a relatively strong number for for a summer you know a summer quarter, uh, I thought was pretty pretty strong. And it continues. This segment continues to make up the lion's share of Apple's top line. Um, in addition to some really solid stuff over on the unit side, um, average selling price looked pretty good too. Uh, came in at six hundred and six dollars, uh, which is up from five hundred and ninety five dollars a year ago. And, and I think what you're seeing there is the influence of the plus models and, and some of the kind of higher value models uh, in their product line. Right, and then you know, with all these rumors that this next one's going to be even, like really like any, I've seen reports that the next iPhone could cost anywhere from a thousand to fourteen hundred dollars. And fourteen hundred sounds a little nuts, but I mean the point being that I think they are going to try to pack a, a lot of new features into this new one, and obviously that will only help average selling prices going forward. Um, because I mean I, I can imagine this is going to be a massive cycle, you know, with what they have in store, depending on if they can actually produce enough of them. But I mean the the big feature being potentially an OLED display, and OLED displays are quite expensive. And the way that Apple always prices its products is, you know, they have their own margin profile they want to maintain. So if if one of their components is expensive, I mean, that's going to translate into a pretty bigger increase on on the actual retail price compared to, for example, if another manufacturer wanted to include the same feature but was willing to kind of, you know, sacrifice on margins. But Apple, you know, charges for their features, right? So any big new feature will cost you. Um, so I do think that there is going to be some some upside for ASPs going forward. Yeah, they are always happy to pass along costs to the customer, and it seems like people are happy to pay for it. Um, I am certainly <laughs> I'm certainly guilty of that. Uh, one of the other segments that has gotten a lot more attention in the last couple of years is Apple's services segment, and this just keeps humming along. I mean, this most recent quarter, it came in at 7.3 billion, which is good for 22% growth year over year. Um, Apple's it's all-time record too. Yeah, it's crazy. And Apple's services business is now a Fortune 100 company, which is baffling. That is huge. Right. So on a trailing 12-month basis, it's now a 27 billion dollar business, which is like larger than Facebook, for example. <laughs> and I mean, this is very high-margin stuff. It's growing very quickly. Uh, I, Apple Music is one big driver. They didn't give an update this quarter on how many subscribers there are, but the last update was at WWDC in June, so just a couple months ago, and there were 27 million Apple Music subscribers, and that's a pretty strong. You know, they just keep adding subscribers, and Spotify's you know kind of maintaining their lead with 60 million right now, but both Apple and Spotify are marching higher, so it doesn't seem like one is. They're you know both are benefiting from the, just the growing market for overall stream paid stream music that people are willing to pay for again 
And the other they, they mentioned was iCloud storage, which was kind of interesting because I don't really see that as a huge. I don't think they have a really strong value proposition with cloud storage compared to some of their competitors. But they did mention that you know, they are seeing some nice revenue growth from selling those those iFast storage plans, which are subscription plans. Um, they also mentioned that paid subscriptions, which is the number they've only recently started to disclose, continues to go up. We're now at 185 million paid subscriptions that are going through their all of their stores combined. Those aren't individual customers. Those are all just number of subscriptions. So, you know, one user may have multiple subscriptions, but uh, that's up from 165 million last quarter and 150 million the quarter before that. So over the course of six months, they've added 35 million paid subscriptions and they get a 15% cut of that revenue after, you know, you know they, they get a cut and there's cut changes based on how long that relationship is there. But either way, it, it, that's, you know, that's a very profitable you know, revenue coming in, and it's recurring. It's you know, it's it's consistent. So I mean, this 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 business is really doing well. And in a lot of ways, this was kind of a surprising quarter. We you know we talk about how this is kind of what we think of as like the summer doldrums right before they kick into uh, you know fever pitch for them. Uh, you know, with theoretically at least uh, the new iPhone release. But I think one of the biggest surprises, looking at their report and some of the commentary here was seeing the iPad segment register some really solid growth. Uh, this is a segment that I think a lot of people have just kind of written off. Right. It's been really weak for many years. And uh, I, I think that what they'd finally figured out is that, you know, to hit this, to, you know, they finally figured out what's going to unlock unit sales because unit sales were up 15%. And, you know, that three, the new $329 iPad that they introduced in March is clearly a hit. Like that is, and that's the lowest Price they've offered on a relatively new 9.7 inch iPad to, you know, to date, and clearly that approach is working because you know they took they basically did what they did with the iPhone SE, which is you know take more current specs, put it in in more or less a recycled form factor, but then drop the price and be really aggressive with it, uh, versus the kind of historical strategy they've always had, which is you know every, when you introduce a new product, you you reduce the price on the old product and just kind of step it down. But now what they're doing is they're releasing newer products that are, you know, they're still combinations of old products, right? But they're they're coming in really aggressively in that 329. Like that's almost like an impulse buy for for <laughs> what that iPad is capable of. And you can see that because average selling prices were basically flat sequentially, right? So that's a like 435 or so. And they also introduced the 10.5 inch iPad Pro, but that was in June at the end of the quarter, so it's hard, you know that, that probably had less of an impact. I'm sure there were some nice sales there, but as far as a whole quarter goes, that 329 iPad is definitely doing well. And I mean, 15. And I mean, I, I, I had an article that that charted the the growth, and I mean, iPads units have been declining for years and years, and all of a sudden you get this huge spike in unit sales. So I think investors are very encouraged with that, even though. In terms of revenue, they didn't really they didn't really do that much revenue. The revenue was kind of flat. I think it was up like two percent. Um, so you know, revenue wise, it's not a huge uplift. But the units, that's a really strong unit number. And of course, for Apple, it's all about growing the install base. And then once you get people first time in, they'll upgrade eventually. So you know, there there's some long winded benefits there too. And that is one of the things that ultimately feed into that services segment revenue too, right? It's like the more people that are holding onto your phones. Uh, using your Mac devices, using your iPads, um, that is going to bolster the strength of services, which is super high margin revenue. Um, so, so that cycle is great to see, even if it is in a segment that you know people haven't really been paying too much attention to lately. 
Um, exactly. And, you know, they did also mention, you know, kind of tying this all together is that the number of people that are, you know, because there are a lot of people that buy these devices and then don't really spend much money on apps or services or all or whatever. And the num- and they have mentioned consistently over the past couple of quarters, including this quarter, that the number of people that are transacting on their stores is increasing in, you know, I think it's like something vague, like, oh, it's double digits or something, right? But th- but the point being that there there's growth within the install base of people that are starting to become more active and actively spending more money too. So yeah, to, to, to your point, yeah, it's all tied together as they go to the install base, even if there's not that immediate benefit or, you know, you're still going to, you, you still got a good chance to make more money later on through services and content sales. And a lot of people, more and more people are doing that. The and the big question looking at Apple and and kind of digging through a lot of the financial media about the company lately has been the concerns with the potential delays in the iPhone. And when I think we look at what management provided for commentary, I think some of those fears are alleviated a little bit. Like we we have <laughs> some of those concerns we can kind of dial back because it seems like looking forward um, we're going to be more or less on schedule with what um, the standard iPhone schedule release is. Right. So I think that was another, a big question mark going into this release was, you know, what what's guidance going to look like because of all these expected delays and reports of manufacturing ease being low or trouble making the OLED displays or what have you. So you know, their guidance calls for revenue of forty nine to fifty two billion next quarter, um, and at the high end, at fifty two billion would represent an all time a new record for the September quarter. Um, so I think that put that's exudes a lot of confidence because, you know, so for example, last year, the iPhone seven launched like mid September. So they had about two weeks in the quarter where they had that, you know, that launch effect. And that's a, kind of an important comparison point for this quarter. Cause if they're forecasting that this quarter will be even bigger, it kind of downplays all those fears that there's, there's you know, delays related to the launch because there's been so many reports that you know this this thing might be delayed. Uh, I mean, the flip side is it's possible that that if they're going to price this thing really expensive, that they can maybe drive a lot of revenue growth on a relatively smaller number of units. So that could be the kind of missing piece of maybe there is delays and maybe there are low yields, but maybe they're going to charge enough for what they do have that they can put up this overall top line number. Um, but overall, it, it is it's a pretty strong guide, I think, to the to the fiscal fourth quarter. And as a shareholder, you know, uh, it's been an interesting, I'd say, two years or so with Apple. You know, you had a lot of people kind of about a year ago or so um, fearing that um, we'd hit the saturation point and we wouldn't see these kind of super cycles coming anymore. Um, that people were going to be holding onto their phones for longer. And it's been pretty awesome to see the company just blow it out of the water. Over the last year, um, in the face of you know some of those concerns, um, I have been someone that's been like, "Yep, I'm holding on to my shares. I'm not doing anything with them. This company is just humming along. They're doing so much to return capital to shareholders. They're in such a strong position on their balance sheet with all the cash that they have. Um, I think it's about 250 billion at this point right now. Um, there, there are so many great things with this business um, that even if there are little hiccups or, or delays with the iPhone." Um, this is this is what we would expect to be a weak quarter for them, and they still put up incredible growth. Um, I, I'm just sitting tight and watching because it, it's been a great run so far, and I, I certainly wouldn't want to cut it short. Yeah, I mean, I, I've also just kind of been sitting on my shares, and I was pretty happy that they jumped to all-time highs. I wasn't really expecting that, um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many parts of this business that are so strong that you know, yeah, there are definitely some weak spots. You know, Greater China being 
probably the biggest one, but, um, and there's a lot going on there. So it's hard to really pinpoint, but, um, yeah, I mean, this business is so strong. And I mean, with, with all this delay stuff, Tim Cook is, is acknowledging it, you know, this might be, you know, kind of hurt in the short term, but it's still good for the long term. It bodes well for the future. I think was what he said on the, on the call. And yeah, I mean, these sales are not lost. Apple has such good loyalty that if, if people have to wait a couple months for their new iPhone, they will do that. And very few people are going to go out and buy an Android phone. So it's really just a matter of timing of shifting a sale from one quarter to the next, which is ultimately a pretty short-term concern. Uh, the bigger picture remains very much intact. Yeah, and it's great to see. And I, you know, I'm certainly part of that uh, as as an iPhone uh, owner and someone that will likely upgrade whenever they make the new phones available. Um, listeners, Evan has a ton of really great Apple coverage over on Fool.com. If uh, if you want. Any of the stuff that he mentioned, specifically uh, the piece that has that iPad chart in it, just shoot us a note over at industryfocus at fool.com and we'll make sure to get it over to you. Um, Evan, anything else on Apple, Twitter, your weekend plans, anything like that before I let you go? No, I'm going to take it easy this weekend. It's been a busy week. Yeah, <laughs> earnings, er- season. <laughs> earnings season gets stressful. <laughs> um, well, I will leave you to that. Uh, have fun relaxing with the kids. You too, man. All right, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. Like I said, if you have any questions or if you want one of the pieces that we mention on the show, just reach out, industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and fool on.